The troubling images of the Minnesota policeman kneeling on a dying black man's neck have ricocheted around the world, and millions of people have marched in opposition to what is perceived as systemic police violence against one race. The cop's charges have now been ramped up to second-degree murder, and others in his squad have been charged as well. This has prompted former President Barack Obama to claim that for black Americans, being treated differently by the criminal justice system is, and I quote, tragically, painfully, and maddeningly normal. That's a direct quote from the former president. But is this really the case? Are police forces across the United States riddled with officers who treat African Americans in a racist fashion? And now, as an answer to these accusations, there's, of course, a call to defund police departments all across the land. And in addition, sections of some American cities have been taken over by these protesters who have created police-free zones. Look, I'm not denying that racism exists even in America, but I'm asking a very valid question that can't be dismissed. What in God's name is happening in this country? especially months before a presidential election. Everyone seems to have an opinion, but I'm going to share with you the unadulterated statistics. And for those who want opinions, well, I'll tell you what God's Word, the Bible, says about all this. This is a special edition of Hidden Headlines. Welcome, everyone, to Hidden Headlines, Faith, Family, Freedom. I'm Brian Sussman. More on me at briansussman.com. You've heard my theories regarding the powerful people in high places who are purposefully taking advantage of a crisis or a crisis, as the case may be, because we have the coronavirus and the death of George Floyd. I believe these people, these organizations, these groups, these people in high places are taking advantage of these crises to further their evil agenda for humankind. Now, if you haven't listened to what I think about these particular situations, please listen to podcast 61 and 62 of this podcast series. Now, in this episode of Hidden Headlines, I'm dedicating it to race, ethnicity, division, And I pray unity. I'm going to start with my story, which compared with some of yours might be weak, but it's my story. It's the only story I personally have. And I'll begin with my dad. My dad, who passed away many years ago, was a hardworking entrepreneur. His early years were actually quite traumatic. He was the third of four children born to parents who were Jewish. I mean, straight off the boat from Eastern Europe, Jewish. Dad's mother, my grandmother, died during the birth of his little brother. Dad, who was two at the time, was born about the time that the Great Depression hit. And his dad, my grandpa, who owned a department store in East St. Louis, was forced to close up shop. They all moved to California, East Los Angeles to be specific, for a new start. In fact, decades later, that's where I was born. East Los Angeles, at the time when my dad was a kid, was an unincorporated portion of Los Angeles County known for its diversity. There was a Jewish community, there was a Japanese community, a Mexican community, 
a Russian and Armenian community, Little Italy and a black community were nearby. And by the way, if you want racism, historically, the Jewish people were number one on the hit list. Trust me. When I was a kid, I heard all the jokes about Jews being stingy cheapskates, guilt-ridden people with big noses. I heard it my whole life. My dad hated those jokes and taught me not to be defined by them. He also taught me to ever treat anyone with such disrespect. We moved to Montebello when I was a kid, right next to East Los Angeles. It was a working class neighborhood for people from a variety of ethnicities. I grew up used to having neighbors who just flat out didn't look like me and behind closed doors often didn't speak English. But we all had one thing in common. We were raised to be very proud of the fact that we were Americans. My dad owned a delicatessen and liquor store on Central Avenue in Los Angeles. It's a neighborhood now referred to as South Central. It's where the Rodney King anti-police protests and race riots occurred back in 1992. That unrest was the result of the way a black man, Rodney King, was treated by the police. Since the 1970s, South Central has been predominantly black. But when my dad had his store in the area, it was, it was diverse. It was much like East Los Angeles. That said, I do recall many of my dad's customers being black. And he treated them with respect. He treated them as valued patrons. A few years later, I was maybe five at the time, my dad sold the deli and built a little fast food place on 3rd and Soto Streets in East Los Angeles. It's an area known on the outskirts of a neighborhood which was then known as Boyle Heights. He served burgers, hot dogs, and tacos. I vividly recall the Mexican gang fight he personally broke up in his parking lot. He firmly told the gangsters, you can eat here, but you can't fight here. They seemed to be cool with it. I went into the restaurant several years ago. It's now called Tom's Burgers. And even though the menu is nearly all Mexican food, it looks pretty much the same as when I was a kid. The neighborhood is now Mexican. The Sereno gang is large and in charge there. But I went into the restaurant with my kids again some years ago. <laughs> and as you'll discover in a bit, uh, my kids are not white. And as such, I was the only white person within sight. I walked up to the counter and asked if the owner was there. Everyone behind the counter looked at me as if I was a Martian. Apparently no one could speak English. So I attempted in my broken Spanish to tell them that my dad built the restaurant. I said, mi papá construyó este restaurante. Suddenly, everyone behind the counter spoke perfect English. The owner came out and our meal was on him. When I was going to eighth grade, we moved to a Chicago suburb. The families in this particular neighborhood were mostly of European descent, generally first or second generation. During my first year of high school, my best friend became Mike, who remains one of my best buddies to this day. Mike lived on the Naval Air Station nearby our high school, and we played football together. His dad was a Vietnam fighter pilot, and Mike would eventually follow his footsteps to do the same thing in subsequent global conflicts around the world. Some weekends, Mike stayed over at our house, and I would oftentimes do the same thing at his. And oh, by the way, I guess I forgot to mention, Mike and I are different colors. He's black, and I'm not. My other best friend was Carl. Carl lived just down the street and had eight siblings. His parents were first-generation Italian-Americans. 
the first time I saw the movie The Godfather, <laughs> the scenes in the movie, I thought it was watching Carl's family. <laughs> Our families were different as night and day. But again, we had one thing in common. We were Americans. I went on to go to college at the University of Missouri. I fell in love, married my college sweetheart right after graduation, and got a job managing a local TV newsroom. I befriended a new hire working in the business office. He was a young kid just out of high school and was way over his head with his new job. He was living with his girlfriend and they were struggling to make ends meet and she was pregnant. By this time, I'd become a follower of Jesus and I invited him to our church. Long story short, they both decided to surrender their lives to Jesus and were literally married one Sunday morning during a church service at our church. They walked down the aisle. He was in a nice, crisp, dark business suit, and she was in a beautiful white wedding dress, about eight months pregnant. They said their vows. Oh, and I forgot to mention, I forgot to mention, they are black. Interestingly, he became a pastor. After my wife and I had our first child, we became deeply moved by the pro-life movement. Our daughter was maybe one or two at the time. We decided to attend a peaceful Mother's Day march around a Planned Parenthood clinic where abortions were carried out. This was in Santa Cruz, California. Abortions took place in the building that we were peacefully marching around. And my wife and I, to this day, will never forget what happened. I can't recall if it was Weeks later or months later, but I remember asking her this question. Do you remember the women? This is me talking to my wife. I said, do you remember those two women on the steps of the Planned Parenthood? One had colorful spiked hair. They looked kind of gnarly and they were just staring at us and, and growling as they stared. And one of them shouted at us, oh yeah, right. If I was pregnant you would adopt my baby? I mean, her words just hit me in the heart. And I asked my wife if she recalled that. And much to my surprise, my wife not only recalled that statement being made, but it hit her the same way it hit me. To make a long story short, a couple years later, we talked to an adoption attorney who worked for a home for pregnant women who wanted their babies adopted. This was in San Jose, California. It was Thanksgiving week. We were actually living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was working for a CBS television station in Pittsburgh, as well as working part-time for the network in New York. We were back in the West visiting family in the Bay Area. And here we are talking to this adoption attorney. We just kind of wanted to explore the idea of adoption, what that would entail, what it would take. It was a fact-finding mission for us. Nonetheless, a month later, on Christmas Eve, we received a call from that attorney. Two women in that home had selected us to adopt their child. Both women were due in just a few months. One of the babies, we were told, had been determined to be a girl and would probably look a lot like my wife and I, as well as our daughter. The other child was a boy, half white, half black. The attorney wanted us to make a decision. Tonight, I asked him. 
He said, no, but sometime within the next couple of days. And that was the end of the phone call. (laughs) That was on Christmas Eve. And I remember the weight of this decision we had to make immediately fell upon my shoulders. And it was way above my pay grade. And I looked at my wife and I said, I I understand we don't have to make a decision today, but this is too much for me. I've got to go take a walk. And she said, okay, you take a walk. I'm going to stay in the house and pray. So I remember taking this walk again, Christmas Eve. I took a walk into this neighborhood next to ours that was just absolutely beautiful, an old Pittsburgh neighborhood. It was a foggy night. It just seemed almost surreal outside. And after walking for about two hours, I finally fell upon my knees, literally fell upon my knees. And I said, God, I don't know what kind of decision to make here. You've got to help me. Do we adopt the boy? Do we adopt the girl? Do we do nothing? I was literally on my knees in this neighborhood. It's probably nine o'clock at night foggy, a little bit of a drizzle falling as well. And God spoke to me as I was on my knees, like he's perhaps never spoken to me since. I knew exactly what we were supposed to do. I stood up, wiped the tears from my eyes, and I walked back home. I remember coming to the front door of our house and literally turning the handle on the door And as I turned the handle on the door, the door opened. My wife had apparently heard me coming up the stairs. She opened the door. She looked me in the eye and she said, it's the boy, isn't it? And sure enough, that's what God told me when I was on my knees to adopt the boy. And we did. And we would end up adopting two more boys along the way, one an infant and another six years old. They too don't look anything like my wife and I and our daughter, but they are our sons through and through. And shortly after the adoption of our first son, we moved back to the San Francisco Bay Area from Pittsburgh, and I began working for the CBS TV station in San Francisco, as well as doing fill-in for the CBS TV uh, national morning show in New York City known as CBS This Morning. Simultaneously, while working in San Francisco, while on TV at Channel 5 KPIX, I co-founded an organization called Brian's Kids. We were going to use the airwaves of Channel 5 in San Francisco every Wednesday evening to highlight the life of a child in foster care who needed to be adopted. These were 90-second pieces, again, every Wednesday And can I tell you something? Over the course of 10 years, we saw 400 kids adopted, 400 children. By the way, as an aside, there was a time when we were shooting an episode of Brian's Kids in a black neighborhood in Oakland. (laughs) I was sitting in my black Mercedes parked on a residential street, awaiting the film crew to arrive And suddenly, two Oakland police cars pulled up. I was approached by a black officer and asked to get out of my vehicle. I was patted down and asked, what was I doing in the neighborhood? Once he realized who I was and what I was up to, everything was fine. I asked him how they came upon me. I mean, 
Why did you guys drive up behind me, ask me to get out of the car, pat me down, etc.? He said it was because a neighbor had called, <laughs> worried about the white guy sitting in the black Mercedes. They assumed I was a drug dealer. But of course I wasn't. I was just a guy who was passionate about being pro-life and had a TV series to prove it. That said, I've always been passionate about the pro-life movement and adoption because that is my family. We've got our bio daughter and then we've got our three sons who just happen to be adopted. I always like to say it like this. I have four children, three are adopted, but I can't recall which three. Adding to my story, my wife and I have been a part of several multicultural churches over the years two of which were pastored by black men. For the better part of a decade, I produced a syndicated Christian radio show heard on 300 stations across the country wherein the pastor was a black man. I'm just, I'm just telling you this so you know who I am. And I pray to God that if I have a racist bone in my body, he will reveal it to me so that I may repent. I'm serious about this. As I've shared in episode 62, the left loves to take advantage of a crisis, and this was best articulated by President Barack Obama's chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, who later became mayor of Chicago, when he said, never let a serious crisis go to waste. Now, I've seen the video of the cop in Minnesota with his knee on the neck of the ex-felon George Floyd. He had his knee on the guy's neck for eight minutes. That big black man was so unconscious, he had actually peed himself. And watching the officer almost makes you wonder if this wasn't just a murder, but a planned murder, planned to be live on social media, designed to cause an uproar. I mean, it was that outrageous. And by the way, I would not put it past the kooks on the left to find just the right stooge to carry out a crime. Their hatred for President Trump is so far off the grid that creating such a calamity wouldn't surprise me in the least. I mean, best-selling suspense novels are ripe with such plots. After Floyd's death, the progressive left activists went into overdrive immediately, immediately organizing these mass protests and organizing all of the violence that ensued at the same time. And in the process, at least two black officers have been killed by demonstrators. High-end retail stores have been looted. Mom-and-pop businesses ransacked and in some cases burned to the ground. Many of them, by the way, owned by black people. Can someone please tell me how is this justified? Now let me share with you a shocking fact. This is one that the mediaites on the left won't touch. From 7 p.m. Friday, May 29th through 11 p.m. Sunday, May 31st, 25 people were killed in the city of Chicago and another 85 wounded, all by gunfire, in Chicago. And most of the people involved, both killed and wounded, were black. 
Chicago is a city run top to bottom by nothing but progressive liberal Democrats. Some of those who lost their lives during that particular hellish weekend were simply minding their own business and were caught in crossfire. Again, I ask my God friends, what is happening? What is happening? If black lives matter, why aren't there protests taking place in Chicago? And now there's an effort to defund police nationwide. Have we gone mad? Let me share with you some other unadulterated statistics. Heather McDonald is one of the finest journalists, maybe the finest I've ever interviewed. She was a guest on my radio show many times. She's been studying and reporting on the police for many years and even wrote a a book on the subject published in 2016 entitled The War on Cops. Now, here are the numbers that she has carefully culled. On June 2nd, she wrote an excellent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. The op-ed was entitled The Myth of Systemic Police Racism. In the article, she notes that last year, there were 375 million police encounters with civilians. So all across America, there were 375 million police encounters. Now, I see that fact, and it becomes apparent that 99.99% of those went down without incident. We're talking about everything from traffic stops to cops arriving on the scene of a, a serious crime like a murder. For the last bunch of years, there have been well over 300 million police encounters annually. And again, they involve everything from traffic violations to showing up at the scene of a big-time crime. So I continue now with Heather's piece. In 2019, police officers fatally shot 1,004 people. All across the United States, 375 million encounters 1,004 people were fatally shot. Most of those 1,004 were armed or otherwise very dangerous. Okay, since Black Lives Matter, here's what Heather McDonald shares. Quote, African Americans were about a quarter of those killed by the cops last year. A ratio that has remained stable since 2015. That share of black victims is less than what the black crime rate would predict, since police shootings are a function of how often officers encounter armed and violent suspects. In 2018, the latest year for which such data have been published, African Americans made up 53% of known homicide offenders in the United States and commit about 60% of robberies, though they are 13% of the population. Now, those are facts. And that's from Heather McDonald's piece in the Wall Street Journal. Now, let's stop and parse that data. In 2019, 235 black people were killed by the police. 53% known homicide offenders were black. 60% of robberies were committed by African-Americans. I've done some further digging, which I'll add to Heather's research. Last year, 370 white people were shot dead by the police, as were 158 Hispanics. I'm getting this data from Statistica.com. In 2018, 399 whites were shot and killed by the police. 209 blacks were killed, 
148 Hispanics. In 2017, 457 white people were shot and killed by the police. 223 shot and killed were black. 179 were Hispanic. Again, last year, last year, 370 whites, 235 blacks, 158 Hispanics shot dead by the cops. So far this year, 2020, it's 172 whites, 88 blacks, and 57 Hispanics. Once again, last year police gunfire fatally took down 375 or 370 whites and 235 blacks. Of those, nine of the blacks were unarmed. So 235 blacks died, nine were unarmed. 370 whites killed by the cops, 19 were unarmed. Let me take this further. I don't have data for black homicides in 2019, but I do have the numbers for 2018. And there were 7,407 black homicide victims. 7,407 black people murdered. The statistics bear out the fact that most of the blacks were killed by other blacks. Now, assuming that there were nine unarmed black victims of police shootings represents 0.1% of all African-Americans killed in 2019. By contrast, a police officer is 18 and a half times more likely to be killed by a black male than an unarmed black male is to be killed by a police officer. Now, those are the unadulterated statistics. Now, since cops are on the defunding docket, let's go to a major city in my state and check diversity. Los Angeles, second largest city in the United States. 13,195 law enforcement personnel, according to... LAPDonline.org. 13,195 cops. 1,638 are black. 3,572 are white. 6,309 are Hispanic. The remainder are Asian American, American Indian, or Pacific Islander. That's very diverse. Let's go to the largest city in the United States, New York City, where the most recent stats indicate there are 34,822 police officers. Half are white, 20% Hispanic, 15% are black. 15% equals basically 5,000 black police officers in New York City. Protesters around the nation continue to call for police reform. Here's an important fact. While some officers do abuse their power, The majority, without question, are good cops. For every officer who visits harm on someone or violates the public trust, there are countless others who follow the rules and want nothing more than to protect, serve, and return return home safe at the end of their shift. Are there bad cops? Of course there are. Just like there are bad professionals in every occupational endeavor. Why? Because we are human. In fact, the Bible says it like this. It's the book of Romans in the New Testament, chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
all have sinned. And as long as we're talking about the Bible, let's talk about race relations, because as long as cultures and ethnicity have been on the planet, there have been tensions, to say the least. Hatred, hatred more than tensions would be a more appropriate way to describe it. The history of the Bible goes back as far as any written history we have in this world. I know evolutionists will tell us that humans have been here for millions of years, but in terms of recorded history and actual artifacts, we're only able to account for the past 5,000 years. And that said, during those thousands of years, there have been constant wars and hatred between people groups. The Bible speaks of wars between Israel and the Amalekites and the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Midianites and all these otherites, as well as the Philistines. Today, this very same land in the Middle East is wrought with hatred between various racial and ethnic groups. Culturally, the Middle East has been home to several of the Earth's oldest cultural communities. And here has emerged three monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and they fight like hell with one another. And they all mostly hate Israel, at least those in the Middle East, right? And they want to see it wiped from the maps. And additionally, the Saudis hate the Turks. Both countries dislike Iran and Iraq. Those in Pakistan hate those in Afghanistan. Sunni Muslims have it in for the Shia Muslims. The Muslims in Kurdistan seemingly dislike any extreme form of Islam and are interestingly tolerant of Christians. You know, I was talking about race with the ambassador from an African country just last week. He said on his continent, hatred begins with appearance. Tall, short, broad nose, narrow nose. And you're discriminated as a result of that. This is in Africa. And it's been that way forever. He also reminded me how Arabs began the slave trade in Africa buying prisoners taken in wars between African factions and then selling them to whites from Great Britain and America. Folks, it's a lot more complicated than the protesters can handle. And then there was the Native American slave trade that existed in what is now the United States between 1660 and 1715. As many as 50,000 Native American Indians were captured by other Indians and sold into slavery in Virginia and Carolina the Virginia and Carolina colonies, that is. So let, let me stop right there. Friends, please. All of this is atrocious in the eyes of God. But again, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory. In fact, if you read further into that book of Romans chapter 3, you'll see that Satan's goal, Satan, his goal, has always been to steal the affections of mankind from God and destroy this beautiful creation that God made. But Jesus made it possible for all those who believe to be reconciled to God. Reconciled to God. It's possible, my friends, for us to all get along. One more note here for you regarding the United States of America. Groups like Antifa and Black Lives Matter want to dismantle this country. I've addressed this in the last podcast. They want to destroy America, fundamentally destroy America. Since World War II, the United States has been the undisputed leader of the Western world. Before the United States, the British Empire was the world's leading power for well, well over a century. The United States and Great Britain share similar values. 
Nobody alive can remember a time when one of these nations was not a major force in the world. Now, certainly neither the United States nor Britain has been perfect. But it is equally certain that domination by other nations would have made the world an entirely different place. And a scary place at that. But let me continue with some final thoughts. However imperfect both Britain and America, based on their political, economic, and religious systems, value the freedom of the individual. In contrast, most continental European nations historically have placed little value on individual freedom. They've subscribed instead to variants of strong central government at the expense of individual liberty. In Western Europe, this has been tempered since World War II, but nonetheless, it's there. It's not like the United States. It's not like Great Britain. But let me say this going forward. Whoever takes over as the dominant power in this world will not share the values of the United States and Britain. And in the process, Jews will once again be openly persecuted, as will authentic Christians. I mean, folks, you want to see hell on earth? Let these wild protesters have their way. You want to see heaven on earth? Just wait, because there are two verses in the Old Testament book of Malachi. One says, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire. Not a root nor a branch will be left to them. But to you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. That's the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. So I ask, what happens when Jesus returns? And I tell you, evil will be defeated, the earth restored, and God will win. And your response to Jesus. And his return depends on your relationship with him. Friends, I say that because despite all the turmoil and all the craziness, I believe there's hope. Hidden Headlines. Faith, Family, Freedom. I'm Brian Sussman. More on me at briansussman.com. I also post on Facebook at Brian Sussman Show. Thanks for joining me. And as callers to my radio show would always tell me upon concluding their phone calls, I will now hang up on myself. <laughs>